0: The text for this morning's sermon is found in Revelations chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Father, as we undertake now to apply this word to our church and our moment in history, would you come and help me to speak the truth in its biblical proportions and with appropriate affections. And would you give hearts to feel and ears to hear and minds to understand and a readiness to respond and conform. You've told us not to be conformed to the world or this age, but to be transformed in the renewing of our minds. And so I pray for mind renewal, through truth now, and that the Holy Spirit would so apply the truth to our whole being that body, soul, and spirit we might be conformed to Jesus, that the world might see something different, something really powerful, something evidencing your reality. So get glory through us, I pray now. And if there is any here, who is without Christ by faith, may they be drawn irresistibly by your truth and your beauty to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The greater the distance between us and our heroes, the distance in time the easier it is to overlook their flaws. Which is one of the reasons why some evangelical Christians stumble over Martin Luther King Day and not over President's Day. King is too close, and so his warts can be seen at a distance of 33 years, and they are remembered. Whereas 201 years separating us and the death of George Washington allow us to selectively forget that his nominal Anglican faith was pretty much social convention, that he evidently never took communion in his life, That John Adams, the second president, was skeptical about traditional Christianity. That Thomas Jefferson, the third president, openly scoffed at the Trinity and the deity of Jesus. That James Madison, the fourth president, moved into deism in his older age, along with all the other upstanding political figures in Virginia of his social status. But from a distance, we don't feel the same indignation about the flaws of our heroes that we do when they're close. Distance, especially over time, allows us to make distinctions more easily than if they're right there in our faith or on videos. We're able to say, this characteristic we admire and we celebrate, this characteristic we deplore because it's deplorable. And we make those distinctions and are able then to make our speeches and do our political homage without becoming two-faced. Martin Luther King was a sinner and he knew that, especially when he got caught for doing things he was ashamed of. I recommend this biography, or any good biography, this is the one I happen to read, by Stephen Oates, O-A-T-E-S. Let the Trumpet Sound, The Life of Martin Luther. This is a very good book. I really enjoyed this book. seems very fair to me, and lets the warts show, and lets the greatness show. He was a sinner, and my guess he w- is that he was more of a Christian than all of our first four presidents combined. I was 17 years old when, on August 28, 1963, he stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, where I... I've stood since then many times and looked at that gigantic seated figure of Abraham Lincoln. When he stood there and said, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The reason Martin Luther King was great, and the reason there's a day tomorrow set aside for his memory, is because he had a great vision. He had a great dream and he symbolized that great vision in his own sacrifices, even his life. Now today, what I want to do in this service is ratchet that dream up into a full-blown biblical dream and vision about races. Because Martin Luther King knew very well that his dream, as he articulated it that day at least, was a partial dream about black and white. The burning issue still is a burning issue. But it wasn't the whole dream. God's dream is a bigger dream, a longer dream, and completes King's dream. The biblical vision is bigger because it involves all the races, all the languages, all the peoples, all the ethnic groups. One of the great values of the book of Revelation, which Jim just read from, is that while it has many perplexing things, it's the one book that John Calvin never wrote a commentary of because he didn't understand it. It's a very perplexing book. But there are a lot of clear things in this book, all right? A lot of peculiar numbers and symbols. Don't let that keep you from getting what you can get, and the gettable is worth it. And one of the great values of this book is that it gives you glimpses of where everything is moving and is going to arrive someday, And when you know where everything is moving and is going to arrive someday, you know the meaning of the movement. There's no reason for anybody who believes the scriptures to be perplexed about the meaning of history. Or the meaning of your life in history. Or the meaning of this church's existence in history. Or the meaning of this little teeny weeny short-lived thing called the USA in history. There's no reason anybody should be perplexed about why are we here and where is it all tending? Because the book of Revelation gives enough snapshots of where it's all moving that you can begin to get get it. I get it. And then you can get on board with it. And join God instead of striving against him, which is absolutely futile. He's going to win. This thing is coming to pass. It's described as a done deal, both in Romans 8 and in Revelation. So the glory and the value of the book of Revelation is that it tells you how the story is going to end and where it's all moving and how you can get on board and therefore make sense out of this thing called the world and history and life and family and government and politics and entertainment and education. Let's read where it's all going here. In verse 9 of chapter 5, there's this strange phrase, worthy are you to take the book. Now, the book, in the context, the scroll, is the scroll of the end of history. It's got seals on it. The reason you know it's the scroll of the end of history is that as the seals are broken, more history unfolds, more things happen. So the seals are broken, and the book unrolls, and history unfolds. So, what this is saying is that God has ordained that a man be authorized to unroll history. Nobody is worthy to do this except one man, the God-man, The Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, who was slain for this very thing. Now this is the remarkable thing about this verse. He is killed and shed his blood to authorize him to unroll history. So what is about to be described now in this one glimpse of the unrolling of history was blood bought by the Son of God, which ups the ante of it in my heart very high. If this thing was bought by the death of Almighty God's Son, this is worth looking at. This is worth living for. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. Why are you worthy? Because you were slain. God has ordained that a slain man unroll history. Not one who is unable to sympathize with us. Because believe me, there is blood flowing as deep as a horse's bridle at the end of history. This is no wimpy king unrolling history here. His sword is dripping with his enemy's blood. That's King Jesus. But he didn't do it before he died. The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. But He is coming a second time, not to save, but to slay the wicked. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom, priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, two reasons for purchasing people... From all of those ethnic groups, all the races, all the languages, all the sub-ethnic groupings that you can think of, he died to purchase people from them first that he might make them a kingdom. So the picture I have in my mind here is that history ends with the king gathering He's ransomed from all the peoples, every shade of color, every language, every ethnic cultural thing that's out there. He gathers into himself with King Jesus at the center. And what unites us is a passion for the supremacy of King Jesus. That's what a kingdom means. He's a king gathering a kingdom. The second thing it says is that they will be priests to our God. Now, priests mainly worship. Their job is worship. The Levites in the Old Testament didn't get any land to farm. Their portion was the Lord. And now we will all be made priests. Priests and God will own all the land, and our main vocation will be worship. So you have people from every race and every language gathered around the king as a kingdom, and they are all priests, which means their main vocation gathered around the king is to worship the king. So you see it fulfilled there in verses 13 and 14. Every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I think in two weeks I'm going to preach a sermon on amen. I kept telling the staff for years, i got to preach on amen, amen, and that word. So pray, if you want that to happen, that it would happen in continuing our worship series. So in two weeks, what is amen? Christ died, this verse says, in order that people and fish would do this. Did you notice the fish? Every created thing which is in the heaven or on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying. Now give me a break. I've heard of flying fish. But talking fish? Talking fish. So what's so new about dolphins? Squeak, 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 squeak. What do you think they're saying? I think they're saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory, dominion forever and ever and You will be granted, perhaps, on that day, the gift of interpretation. I really do not doubt this. These are not stupid, pre-scientific people who thought animals talked. They are radically God-centered people who believe nothing is created except for God. Nothing. whale I caught a fish one time off Cape Cod in Massachusetts that had feathers everywhere it looked like weirdest creature I had ever seen in my life in book or out of a book and as I picked it up its belly swelled up to three times its size I threw it back in the water and it floated for 15 minutes like a balloon Praise God for weird things. <laughs> There's no accident. Now, Christ died that you might join them as a sinner in praising God. You black, you white, you yellow, you red, you brown, you all shades in between priests and Kings to your God. That's what history's about. That's where history's going. That's where this church is going. That's where the city's going. That's where my life is going. And the call this morning on this church is get on board with the assembly from all races and all languages of kings and priests to our God. That's the call this morning. Now, here's some implications for our church. There are 6,528 languages in the world, according to the Ethnolog database of November-December 1992. I don't know whether any of those have died out in the last six years or not, because they said in the article I read that about 218 of them are almost extinct but about 6,500 languages in the world today. This text says that Christ died and ransomed people for God from every one of them. If there was ever a mandate for Wycliffe Bible translators or New Tribes Mission or any other group that is intent on reaching all the peoples of the world, that's it. This is not a mission Sunday, and so I'll pass over that, though I'd love to dwell on it more. It's why we have the 2,000 by 2,000 goal at our church of sending and harvesting. But another implication is that all of these people being assembled from every race and every language are assembled to worship, to say blessing and honor and glory and dominion be to you, black and white and brown and red and yellow and all the shades shades. In between. Now, would you not agree, is it not inconceivable that this should be such a historic priority to God, that it should be a matter of indifference to us whether it comes to pass in measure now? I mean, is it conceivable that this is where God's going? Every language group, every race, all colors, all ethnic distinctions gathered under the supremacy of God in all things, and we don't care about whether that happens now, but are content to go ahead being racist or just blasé or indifferent about whether we even know anybody of a different race or language. It's inconceivable. At least it seemed inconceivable to those who in 1995 and 1996 crafted our mission statement. If you are interested in this church at all, and you wonder what makes us tick, get this booklet. This is not out of date. This is alive and well and determining our thinking and much of our work. And they're available, lots of them, Joby told me after the last service, out there somewhere on a table. The mission statement is on the front. It's on that banner up there. The dynamic is in here, and then there are fresh initiatives and value statements like eager openness to new people and the avoidance of cliquishness. Determination to welcome people different from ourselves for the sake of Christ. Being more indigenous to the diversity of our metropolitan cultural setting, both urban and suburban. And one of the top six fresh initiatives on page three, number three, against the rising spirit of indifference... Alienation and hostility in our land, we will embrace the supremacy of God's love to take new steps personally and corporately toward racial reconciliation expressed visibly in our community and in our church. So what have we done on that fresh initiative? Well... A beginning. Let me give you some examples that might stir you up to join the beginning and make it more of a beginning. One, many of our people have chosen consciously to live in racially diverse neighborhoods. To say with their presence, Northside, Phillips neighborhood, various others, to say with their presence, We want to break down walls that we know come, inevitably, from de facto segregation. Now, we learned that lesson, some of us in the 60s and 70s, that de facto segregation builds walls. And we are fast forgetting it. And there's as much white flight probably today as ever. And perhaps black flight. Or Asian flight. To Richfield. Or Or wherever. So some people, and not everybody's called to leave where they are. But some more are probably called to live and just by their very presence say, I'm not moving out of this situation. I'm embracing it with all the strain and all the tension and by my walking down this street on this evening, I'm not leaving this place. I am in your life. I like it here. I risk it here. I will love you. Second, many people have established personal friendships. Probably some of our suburban people have more multi-ethnic friendships than some of our urban people. Lest you think I'm drawing some kind of artificial geographic line to love here, I'm not. Third, corporately we enjoy, I enjoy, a very good relationship, and we do corporately with Bethesda Baptist down the street, with the Laotian Church of Peace in our own building, and I value my relationship with Pastor Agnew and with Pooh. For the international class here, with the good ministry of Jim and Mary Backstrom, have brought an increased multi-ethnic flavor to our congregation, which I am so glad about. Uh, There have been efforts to befriend and minister to new ethnic groupings like Ethiopians and Somalis with English classes in the neighborhoods here. Perhaps one of the most significant long-term impulses for racial harmony will prove to be the unbelievably increasing measure of transracial adoptions in our church, which we owe in large measure to that wonderful ministry of the Micah Fund. And there are others I could mention, like uh, apprentices brought from Cameroon and Myanmar, and one will be arriving from Ireland next week, who wants to just be with us for three months or so. I say it's a beginning, and I plead with you to make it more than a beginning. Let me close With these three reasons for why God loves races. I do not believe the existence of races are an accident or a curse, nor do I believe that the existence of languages is a curse even though Babel was a means by which humans would be kept humble. So they wouldn't exalt themselves to build a tower into heaven. I don't think God's ultimate purpose was curse with the languages. Because that's not the way it figures in Revelation. Three reasons for why God values diversity in language and culture and race. Number one, the power and depth of praise is made deeper and stronger when it comes from unity and diversity rather than from uniformity. I could argue from that just musically by saying, is it not true that singing all four parts is more beautiful than simple unison? But I won't argue musically, I'll argue biblically by quoting Psalm 96.3. Tell of his glory among the nations. (coughs) His wonderful deeds... Among all the peoples. Why? Why does God tell us, say it to all the races, all the ethnic groups, all the languages? And here comes the reason in verse 4. Because great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. The reason we announce Christ to all the multiple different races and ethnic groups and languages is because praise is greater when it comes from all of those diverse colors and accents and languages and cultural forms. Second reason, a leader is seen to be magnificent in direct proportion to the diversity of the kind of people he can win to follow him. So, if a leader walks into a diverse group of races and languages and he walks out with all the white people following him, well, that's quite a leader. But if he walks out with all the white and yellow people following him, that's a little greater of a leader. If he walks out with all the white and black and yellow people following, he's a greater leader. And if he walks out with people from all the colors following him, he's the greatest kind of leader. Which is what verse 9 of chapter 5 says he died to do. He was slain in order that he might ransom people For God from every tribe and every tongue. So, leader Jesus, King Jesus, walks through the world today, through his missionaries and through his evangelists and through you, and he is winning people from all the races and thus showing his superiority over every other God. Which is the way verse 4 ends in Psalm 96. Above all gods we praise him. Finally... When God moves into the world and brings people to himself from every race, he undercuts the pride of ethnocentrism. In other words, if I begin to get uppity about my whiteness, my beigeness, and God moves mightily in sub-Sahara Africa doing a work of salvation and redemption and transformation or in the black community here or in the Asian community or in the Latino Hispanic community if he does that without me what's he saying to me? he's saying get off it white man Who do you think you are? You think I can't do this thing in Asia without you? You think I can't transform Latin America into a sending country that puts America and England in the shade? So God's insistence on going after people of all kinds humbles people of every kind. This doesn't just work on white people, folks. Black pride better be humbled. Latino pride better be humbled. Red pride better be humbled. Because as soon as I boast in my ethnicity, God's going to cut the root out from under me. Because he can raise up from stone's children to Abraham, which is the very point of that. We have Abraham as our father. No judgment going to come to us. And God's response to that Jewish pride was... I can take stones and create children to Abraham. So the last point is, the reason races matter to God and the reason he goes after all of them is so that none of them would feel superior and all of them would be radically God-centered and dependent on Jesus. So, Martin Luther King had a great dream And I simply call you to join him in it and then to ratchet that dream up to a revelation dream, chapter 5. And then I plead with you to join the staff and the elders to pray that as individuals we'd have a dream. As a John Piper Noel, we'd have a dream. As a church, we'd have a dream. As a city, we'd have a dream. And a nation, we'd have a dream. And history would have a dream, God's dream. And that it would come true with your prayer and your effort. Let's pray. Father, I plead with you now that you would come and you would make our dreams come true. We need you, Lord Jesus, at this moment. Very, very much. To birth dreams for racial harmony. Dreams for more visible statements of how good it is to cherish the supremacy of God in all things together. So birth dreams and realize dreams, I pray, in this your people. Would you stand with me for a closing benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen.